Here's what's coming up in this episode. This buffoon was was willing to put me on meds that I that I didn't need. Just because for whatever reason, for the stigma, I don't know. But um, that's another reason why I feel like a lot of black folks don't go to um, the doctors, don't go see therapists. It's just a lack of trust. Welcome back to the podcast. This is the second half of an interview I did with Katie Logoke, the woman behind Sober Black Girls Club, an online community providing support for, well, sober black women. In the first half of the interview, we discussed Katie's rough road to recognizing she had a problem with alcohol and her early experiences with AA and an outpatient rehab program that helped get her sober. So if you haven't listened to part one, I recommend you go back and listen to it now. We then began discussing how the experience with AA and therapy can be different for, for people of color, which is where we will pick up the conversation. In this episode, we'll talk a lot more about the intersection of race and substance abuse treatment, and we'll finish by discussing Katie's other motivational music track, by far the most um, <laughs> aggressive piece of music we've discussed so far. Fair warning, this episode will contain some swear words that will not be beeped out, if you'd like to listen to a clean version of the episode, I totally invite you to help me edit one. Finally, I want to ask that if you find this or the other episodes of this podcast valuable, that you support it via the Patreon page. There's a lot more I'd like to do in terms of moving from just audio to video and building up the online community as well. I can only do that with your support. Please check out the link in the show notes to get to the Patreon page and see the perks related to becoming a member. One thing I mentioned in part one is that it took me a long time to realize it was good for me to talk to a therapist. If you're a minority, then there's these additional barriers to seeing a therapist or accessing mental health services that white people just don't have to deal with. I'm gonna set aside the cost for a moment. That's a large, obvious barrier, but not necessarily unique to the black experience. No, the first barrier we're talking about is much more insidious one. If you're a minority, operating environments dominated by white people, there's this pressure to prove that you're just as good as they are, that you're not there as some diversity token handout. I've often caught myself doing these background mental calculations about how I'm perceived by others. Not just in terms of representing myself well, but representing my entire race well. I imagine this is the same calculations that women have to do in male-dominated environments. In this context, there's such fear that seeking out help would just be confirming some narrative that black people are just intrinsically fucked up. Katie weighed in on this too, and on his intersection with sexual orientation. And especially if you're black, and especially if you're, and if you're, you're gay, like, like mm. you, you know, it's, uh, uh, like, <laughs> you know, like, people are already trying to live in their truth, and then to have this another issue on top of them, like, mm-hmm. who, why would I want to let that be out in the world, especially if I haven't even processed being black or being and being gay? Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I haven't really processed what that means to me, what that looks like to me. And like, maybe I haven't even fully accepted yet. In addition to the challenge that personal identity presents, Katie brought up another issue that acts as a huge barrier to the black community. I don't really trust doctors for shit, excuse my language. Um, I mm. that, and I've heard this from multiple women and <laughs> in, in Silver Black Girls Club as being misdiagnosed. Um, I remember when I was going through um, 
a really tough time, 2017-2018, and I went to go see a doctor, and then she diagnosed me with being bipolar. And at that time, I really didn't care, but I thought it was just so weird. I was like, I don't, I'm not manic. Like this is, I'm just depressed. Like this is, it was the weirdest thing I've I've, I've ever heard. And I remember mm-hmm. I told my parents, and they were like, You are not. My parents are nurses. They were like, You're not bipolar. Katie lived with that diagnosis for a while until she went to her outpatient rehab program. As part of that program, she got an appointment with a new doctor. So I went to see that doctor and she was just like, well, how many sessions did you have with that counselor? And I was like, one. And then she was like, wait, what do you mean one? And I was like, I only have one session with her. And she was like, she cannot diagnose you with bipolarism and only spoke to you once. Apparently, a diagnosis takes more than one quick session with a doctor. Eventually, her new doctor gave her a diagnosis of OCD, which she says made a lot more sense for her. It's a diagnosis that fit with what she feels was her obsession with perfection to an unhealthy degree in too many areas of her life. Katie's experience is not unique. We can't talk about the black community's distrust of the medical industry without referencing the Tuskegee study. Here we have to take a brief detour away from Katie for a short history lesson, a lesson where the medical community and government so betrayed the black community that the repercussions of that betrayal are still felt to this day. In 1932, there was no known treatment for syphilis. U.S. Public Health Service, PHS, recruited 600 black men, nearly 400 of which had syphilis and about 200 who did not. They're all told they're going to be getting treatment for bad blood, which is really just a made-up condition. Instead, they're giving placebos, aspirin and mineral tablets. Now, a quote from the History.com article describing the experiment. Quote, In order to track the disease full progression, researchers provided no effective care as the men died, went blind, or insane, or experienced severe health problems due to their untreated syphilis. In the mid-1960s, a PHS venereal disease investigator in San Francisco named Peter Buxton found out about the Tuskegee study and expressed his concerns to his superiors that it was unethical. In response, PHS officials formed a committee to review the study, but ultimately opted to continue it, with the goal of tracking the participants until all died, all autopsies were performed, and the project data could be analyzed. End quote. In this case, it would seem that black lives did not matter. In 1972, Buxton leaks the story to the press, and in response to massive public outcry, the experiment on these black men was stopped. And in 1997, then-President Bill Clinton apologized on behalf of the government for those 40 years of experimentation. The Tuskegee experiment was a terrible example of the medical establishment's failure to the black community. Those failures, however, continue to this day. Numerous studies have shown that black patients get worse medical treatment than white patients do, in part because many medical professionals hold untrue beliefs about black people, including that our nerve endings are less sensitive, that our skin is thicker, that our blood coagulates more quickly, all of which are not true. So, for example, we're not given the proper pain medication commensurate with the amount of pain we're reporting, and heart attacks can be misdiagnosed. 
Doctors also spend less time with African-American patients than with white patients. And to bring it back to Katie's experience, in terms of mental health care, we're often misdiagnosed with conditions such as schizophrenia. When Katie thinks about her misdiagnosis, it's a struggle to explain the poor treatment and inappropriate medicine she received. This buffoon was was willing to put me on meds that I that I didn't need just because for whatever reason, for the stigma, I don't know. But um, that's another reason why I feel like a lot of black folks don't go to um, the doctors, don't go see therapists. It's just a lack of trust. Do you think that your trust is different according to the race of the doctor? Honestly, I think I, like all my doctors now are black because I, it, it has yeah. helped me trust them more. Okay. I still think that a lot of docs, especially a lot of doctors are overworked. A lot of doctors um, don't really. I'm tr- yeah. I, I'm trying to think. I don't know that I've had in my life a black doctor. Yeah. I, I only like, recently, since two years ago, I made sure my doctor was a black. I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. The whole misdiagnosed thing, that, that just was the final straw. Was that hard for you to do? It was it easy to find? It wasn't hard for me to do because I have really good insurance. So, and I, and I understand that. And I, I, I understand that I have good insurance. Um, So I understand that like my dot, and then, sorry, this this is a loaded question. And then I made a choice to move into a really black neighborhood. Um, Before Mm -hmm. I was living in Staten Island, I'm not living there anymore. I'm in Staten Island predominantly white. It's the whitest part of New York city. I'm now living in a black neighborhood um so it's easier for me to get access i will say that what was difficult was a lot of the black medical or medical practitioners or staff whatever um in the black neighborhoods because they are overcrowded because they serve a low income population they might not do the best work so i will say that and not because they're incompetent because they're overworked like they're working yeah. for free for the people like this it yeah. is so i will say that i do have to travel an hour to go see my black doctor who um you know i'm probably only one out of 20 patients she has but that's how she likes it she's retired she doesn't care um and she gives me the the level and attention that i need um and i i don't think if i didn't have my insurance i don't think i would have this experience that i'm having now if that makes sense uh you know what one of the reasons that that drove me to to, to see the therapist in the first place was realizing that i had not uh in my life yet had a serious relationship um over a long period of time mm-hmm. and that that probably wasn't just random chance, but it might have to do with, I might have some issues. <laughs> um, and so then I sought out a therapist who was uh, a gay man who was married and had kids. I figured, well, he's got it figured out. Mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, his input on my circumstances would be more, would be more relevant to me than just speaking a random therapist who, you know, was white and straight and whatever, and might not know Really, I feel understand my life circumstance. You found uh, a therapist of color, and that makes a difference in your therapy. You think? Definitely, I think. And I, she, this was she's a second woman. I remember I met another woman of color. This was like maybe a year ago that I didn't like her. I didn't like her style. She was a little too aggressive for me. And it's okay. Mm. Like that's her style, and we just didn't match. And even, just because she's black, I'm not going to stay with her. Like I know this, she's not my. Um, she she just wasn't my type of therapist. But my therapist now. Um, her being black, her um, living in 
the community, her being personal, her um, her compassion, it does resonate with me. And I think that like with, I remember when I was getting, first trying to get sober and I was going to see the doctor who said I was bipolar. I remember I told her that like, well, she wanted me to get on medication. And I was like, well, I don't want to be on medication. I just want to try getting sober first on my own. And she was like, well, that probably won't happen. And it's just like, like, who the F are you to say that to me? It's just like, who, why would you ever say that when we know people get sober all the time without medication? So why would you try to push pills on me? Like, for what reason? And I think that, like, my experience with white women in general, my experience with white women in the medical field has just been really horrendous. So for me, mm-hmm. per se... Um, my black therapist makes all the difference where I don't feel judged, where I feel like she can understand me and where I feel like she, she, she's not talking from a textbook. Like she's, she's talking from experience. She's talking from her experience as a therapist, from her experience as a black woman, from her experience, like, you know, so for me, it makes all of the difference. And I will say this one thing when it comes to gay males, black males, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. Um, I used to be very like judgmental. I used to be like, I'm all like, tell me, tell yeah. me more. <laughs> I, I want to get this out here because I, I think it's important. I, I used to be so judgmental mm. because I, I do, I have a lot of gay friends, male friends, and I have a family member who's gay and mm. they all date white men. They all surround themselves around a lot of white people. And it's not a problem for me. But in my head, I, I'm always just thinking, like, how are you, like, I don't know, like, I, uh, how, what, are you guys con- what are you guys talking about 24-7? Like, your experiences have to be different, like, blah, blah, blah. In my head, those were the judgments I would, I would pass through. And then I had to realize that, like, the Black community now it really isn't where it needs to be where it, where mm. in terms of the LBGTQIA community. And, um, like, I, I just had to accept and understand that maybe hanging out with white gay males at this time feels comfortable, and that's okay. Because everyone deserves mm. to feel comfortable and not to feel ostracized. And especially with, like, the events that has recently taken place this past week, like, all the hate, the hate crimes against trans people, I could understand <laughs> why my best friend doesn't probably doesn't feel safe around other black males and fear of getting hurt and fear of getting being judged. I can totally understand it. I think like a year ago, I, probably, I would always give him the side eye. Like you need to just, you need to do better. Like you're doing too much. You need like, can you please hang out with one black person, a black guy? He has a lot of black female friends, one man friends, but he doesn't have any like black male friends. And I, I get it. I understand why anyone would see a black I mean, uh, a white male therapist over a black therapist who probably who wasn't gay or straight, whatever. I I get it. Like I I totally understand it. I don't know if that as, as I remember that I had a, a white male therapist, so I'm like, oh, she's talking to me. But <laughs> in that, it, <laughs> as far as my own therapist is is concerned, and I'm not currently seeing him, but I don't think I even considered. <sighs> that there was a chance to find a gay black male therapist. Like, I feel like I'd be looking for like this, this unicorn of a thing that like, you know, there's only one with that's like 600 miles away. Like, (laughs) um, but I haven't even considered it uh, logically. So like, that's something to think about. 
if a white therapist was listening to this, what advice would you give them for better, for, for being a better, you know, service provider to people of color? I think that the past, this, the past couple of weeks have really shown that we do see color in this country and we need to stop living in this magical bubble and stop saying things like we do not see color. There have been many incidents where I would walk into an office or walk into a store with, you know, my 16 inch weave, my makeup, and I do wear makeup and be treated like Beyonce. And then there was times like when I was seeing that doctor where I was too depressed to get ready. I was too depressed to probably even take a shower. I, I might like, and, and that's just the truth. I'm, I know I didn't, I wasn't wearing my weaves and, and I don't wear any stuff for anywhere. I wear stuff cause I, I want to, this, I like, I like how I look like, you know, this is how I, I, I want to dress, but I, you know, I'm, I might not have walked in with like my, my Louis bag. I may have walked in with like some sweats and was just, yeah received the most ill-fitting like uh, attitude the most ill-fitting disgusting customer service um when people find out that i'm a lawyer you can tell that their actions and the atmosphere and the impressions of of me have have just drastically changed um before before them finding out that i'm actually a lawyer and um I, I don't have an answer for that. I just think that I cannot teach someone to, to not be racist because when you judge someone based off of the looks, off of their looks, regardless if, if it's their skin color, regardless if it's the, the texture of their hair, if it's the, um, their outfits, which is classism, it's wrong. <laughs> like you don't know what anyone has been through. You do not know the backstory to anyone and you just need to not judge people based off of their physical features. It's crazy that in 2020, we still have to teach this. With that, we left the topic of our experiences as Black people and mental health care to talk about something else. There's no way we couldn't talk about the recent developments in the Black Lives Matter movement, and I definitely want to get Katie's perspective on things. Man, over the past two and a half weeks, um, uh, being black in America has become a trending topic. <laughs> um, and, and I wanted to ask, you know, how you've experienced the past couple of weeks. <laughs> in my life, not one bit because really? that's going on is not surprising to me. Nothing that has happened is surprising to me. I'm just happy that America's finally making noise. I'm just so happy that my parents are finally telling me to stop, you know, trashing Trump on Facebook. I'm just so happy that my friends are now asking me about different ways that they can get involved because none of this stuff has ever surprised me. I and I don't know why it's surprised. I guess because it's being no. on tape now and now that's being shown. Nothing that is going on has surprised me. Um, I'm just happy and I'm proud of the work that people are finally doing. Secondly, I just want to say that black women um, have, and I'm, and I can, I can say black women because I've worked with so many black women, um, and I am a black woman, have worked tirelessly, tirelessly to eradicate the police force, to face racism, to face. Um, to face discrimination, classism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd say the other members, other members of society haven't, but I can definitely speak for the work that white, that black women, excuse me, have, have done and continue to do. And so uh, 
to see that their work, and I think that a lot of protests are being led by Black women, um, Black mm. people in general, but mostly Black women, says a lot. And I think that their work is finally coming to light and they're finally making noise. I'm not too sure. I, I think that, yeah, those three deaths happening at one time is really what's giving this a lot of attention. We went on to talk about a couple of different aspects of the protests. Side note. Some of the recent protests have become violent and the value of protest actions that harm property is a matter of debate. It wasn't really a topic I was ready to debate on the podcast, though. While neither Katie or I advocate violence, I think we had different opinions about whether the extra media attention that some of those riots brought to the issue were overall beneficial or not. She's a bit more accepting of that stuff than I am, and I decided not to air that part of our discussion. It's a totally valid conversation to have. But that conversation is probably worth its own episode, so I'm skipping it for now. But she did bring up some really great points about the protests that I hadn't really considered. The thing is that there's protests every day, even if it wasn't being shown. Protests happens all the time. I work with a, a group of a black women in Atlanta who protest. You know, sometimes their protests might have a thousand people. Sometimes they might have two thousand. But they're always doing work. But it, it doesn't get shown because the media is only going to show what it wants to be shown. So I, I understand. Mm. And again, I think because I, I, I do do activism and, and this is a this is a topic that means a lot to me. Um, I try not to talk about it a lot on Silver Black Girls Club just because sobriety is tough in itself. And a lot of the people who follow me are newly sober and I don't want to add more trauma to them because what we're going through right now is trauma. It's not fun to protest. Like, protesting is not fun. <laughs> Pro- like, yeah. Organizing protests are not, it's not a fun thing. It's something that we're doing because we feel like we have to do it. This is not for the gram. This is not just to make people happy. It's for it to look good in the magazine. This is our life. So I just want to, I just want to acknowledge, I understand the whole, you know, this is being persistent, but I think that the fight and the struggle has always been persistent, especially in my world, especially with the people I surround myself with. But I agree that the media this time isn't, um, what do you call it? Just detracting like the, the the limelight off of what's happening. And I also will give it up to social media, including Twitter, because everything blows up on Twitter. And once it blows up on Twitter, you can't yeah. <laughs> you can't ignore it. <laughs> so uh, before we leave, I do want to then go out with your other um, <laughs> so motivational, <funny>. inspirational <laughs> power song uh, that you that you'd like to share with the with the sober community. Um, this one is a bit more, it's a bit more, uh, uh, let's say, upbeat. Fair warning, there may be some, some, some swear words in the next uh, segment here in case for those who don't want to hear that, they can, you can stop now. But <laughs> uh, so let's give out the, the other, uh, your other song. Yeah, here we go. So. Start our only fans. Big B and that B stand for bands. If you wanna see some real ass, baby, here's your chance. I say left cheek, right cheek, drop it low and swing. Texas up in this thing, put you up on this game. I be parking my frame. Gang, 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 gang. If you don't jump to put jeans on, baby, you don't feel my pain. Please don't give me hype. Write my name in ice. Can't argue with these lazy bitches. I just raise my price. I'm a boss. I'm a leader. I pull up in my two-seater. And my mama was a savage. Nigga got this shit from Tina. I'm a savage. Yeah. 
I literally listen to that song like every day. Like after this, I'm gonna go get something to eat. I'm probably gonna listen to it as I get something to eat. It's just like a bad. I don't know, ASS, whatever. I don't know if you can curse on this. It's a badass song. We, we just did for like 30 seconds. But... <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a badass song. And I, I, I think I like it a lot because I think that um, Beyonce, so I, I love Megan Thee Stallion and I love Megan Thee Stallion because I feel like she lives like authentically in herself. Um, I think, again, we do a lot of like this respectable thing. So like to be successful, to be like, you have to be one way or, you know, you have to be, I don't know when I think of like, like the, like the 2000 Beyonce. Like, and I think that like, this is who Megan is and she's living in her truth that she's having fun. So I've always been a fan of Megan. So I, I already liked the Savage song even before Beyonce got on it. But I just love this song so much because it's like, I think that Beyonce is like in a point in her career where she doesn't really care about her image anymore. And um, I wish she would have always been like this, but like she's talking about issues more now than ever. Like she's acknowledging like the people who have who have died at the hands of the police. And then she creates this verse where she's talking about like the OnlyFans account, which is basically an um I don't know if you want to know what OnlyFans is. Um, no, no, okay. The exact I actually wrote down the, the that that lyric, which is on her demon time, she might start her OnlyFans. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, on her demon time, okay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, just acknowledging there's an ownership of your sexuality um, yeah. that that is there. That um, honestly, that's 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 been a problem for me. Of of acknowledging that you're a sexual being too and that's totally fine and i'm going to own it and like i'm a powerful person and here it is and you can take it or leave it but like this is me is what i was getting out of the song sorry <laughs> no like, get what you get out of it like get your truths out of it like you know and i mm. just love that she was raunchy and she was like texas because i know Beyonce has like this good girl image but girl you from houston texas like come on i know it has to be some type of toughness in you like some type of raunchiness in you and i just love that she just so like I don't know her verse. First of all, I didn't even know she rapped. And then like she's just being authentic, talking about things that authentic people do. Like just because I might wear a suit nine to five, it doesn't mean I'm not a sexual being. It doesn't mean I don't like to have fun. It doesn't mean I don't probably you know probably don't uh, use words that I probably shouldn't be using. I'm a human being. Like I'm not an angel. I'm there's not like. Yeah. I don't have like no. I'm a human being, so I love this song. I I, I honestly listen to it all the time, like every day. The song we start with and the song we end with, both are coming from this place of like you just gotta you gotta speak your truth. You gotta be you. You gotta and but from two very different directions and and, and influences, obviously. But um, I, I that's obviously your message to people. Oh, that's, I definitely. I think that we drive ourselves crazy. I think um, you know, I, I know it's been like an hour, but I think that like a lot of a lot of my pain has been from me like living inauthentically. Like it's just me wanting to live by a textbook. And I'm happy that I, I don't want to say I'm happy that I, you know, discovered my drinking problem, but I don't think without it, I don't think I would be who I am now. I think I would be doing the same, um, living the life that my parents wanted me to live, living the life that society says I have to live. And that's to me is it's no way to live. Like it's just, it's no way to live, not being you and being your true self. Let me ask you a final question then. Um, if I'm doing my job at all, there'll be some people who who watch this or, or listen to this on a podcast uh, who are in, in a place of loneliness by themselves trying to deal and realizing they might have a problem and, and feeling isolated. What would you say to that person? All right. Well, three things. One, Julie, you're doing like an amazing job. I think this was like one of the 
more fun podcasts I've been on. Been a, a guest. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I, I love <laughs> you know, to keep it up. One, two. Um, I think like the the most important things for you to know and understand is that like you're not alone. And I know it sounds so cliche, but the moment you get help is the moment, or you seek out help. You seek out. Um, sorry, you seek out someone else um, to like help you and assist you in, in addressing and understanding what you're going through is just the first step. And it's, I'm telling you, there's a lot of women who I spoke to and I'm like, okay, can we, can we just, can we just make an intake appointment? Can you just go to the intake? It doesn't mean you have to sign up for outpatient. It doesn't mean you have to do rehab, but can we just set it up and I'll set it up for you and I'll give you the information. You can just go. And they come back feeling so hopeful just because they know that they are not alone and that so many people are going through the same Thing. I don't even care about sharing my story anymore. If this was me a year ago, I probably wouldn't have told you I went to outpatient. But I don't even care about telling my story anymore because everyone has is going through something. Everyone has experienced someone who has been through addiction. A lot of people go through addiction. And if not addiction, a lot of people abuse and misuse alcohol and drugs all of the time. It's nothing new. If you can see my DMs, how many messages I get a day, you would not feel embarrassed, you would not feel ashamed, you would understand that this is a very normal and common thing. So I just want to say, one, reach out to anyone, to anyone who you think you can trust. And hopefully, um, like I tell people all the time, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a medical professional. So I'll help you get the help you need. And just by reaching out to someone who probably doesn't even someone like me or someone like Julie, someone who doesn't, is not a medical doctor or a medical professional, but someone who can point you out into the right direction where you can get help. That's really like the first step that you need to take. And I think that it's just, there's power in numbers. Um, so that's basically like, I guess, yeah, the best advice I can get yeah. someone to reach out to someone. Great. Well, I'm so glad you came on today. I'm put down your Instagram here. So people know how to find you and talk about, Ghost Club Instagram, uh, soberblackghostclub.com uh, is the website, and they can read your blog there. And um, this has been uh, equally fun for me, too, and I got some new songs that I'll be putting on my playlist as well. Uh, <laughs> um, and, yeah, best of luck to, to, to you. Thanks, Julian. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. All right. All right. Have a great day. You, too. I'm about to go get some dinner. with Katie and getting to know her. Definitely check her out. Be sure to look at the show notes for links to the music we discussed and some of the research and articles regarding the challenges that still exist for black people in healthcare. In the next couple episodes, I'll be talking to Mark Turmseed and his incredible journey from a place of addiction to alcohol and opiates to becoming a triathlete and his current work coaching others through his company, Integrity Endurance. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. And be sure to visit the Patreon page so you can support this podcast and get some of the perks of being a member. Thank you.